So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Welcome back. First of all, if you are based in the UK, we have a very, very important favour to ask. Definitely. If you are based in the UK and you have access to an internet connection and you haven't already registered to vote, do Please it Please register now. to vote. Like literally do it now. It takes five minutes, literally five minutes. Yeah, you can Google how to register to vote. It's a very easy process. Um, and if you want, I mean, we, we, like we've just been up and down the country talking at different universities for Adobe. Yeah. We've met so many students, so many young people who uh, are not happy with how things are currently. You can't make change unless you vote. Yeah, if you really want to make a change, you have to register to vote and you have to actually go and vote on December the 12th. Yep. We're not being sponsored by anyone to say this. Um, so if you are in the UK, we just think it's really important. So register to vote, do the thing. Um, we've had, to, well, we just mentioned it there, had a busy week, haven't we? This, the past two weeks have been so busy. We've been up and down the country doing all sorts of different talks. I think I worked out we'd done something like seven talks within 10 days the other so, day. That's a lot of talking. It's a lot of talking and it's something that we're getting better at, but we're still learning. Yeah, we're still learning. I uh, so I did a talk last night, in fact, and uh, I so I like to kind of free ball when I'm when I'm speaking. If something pops into my head, then yeah. I say it. And I said the words. There's this amazing quote, and then I couldn't remember the quote. Shit. What What did you say? Uh, I said, it, "It's oh no, wait, wait, give me a minute. I'm going to think of it. It's." No, I've forgotten it. I'll email it to all of you afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a bit of a disaster, but uh, yeah, the talk, the talk went great. It was fine. The quote that I was uh, trying to remember, let's see if I can remember it now. The quote that I was trying to remember is that creative adult is the child who survived. Oh, nice. Mm, good yeah. quote, right? So yeah, if you'd like to book us to come and speak, then uh, let us know. Connect at rebelscreate.com. Yes, if you know anyone who would benefit from listening to us in mass... Get in touch. Yeah, we love doing it. We love answering questions, Q&A, staying till the end. Um, so, yeah, more of that, please. So um, one thing we've we've definitely encountered through meeting all of these young people recently, uh, and it's not just something that affects young people, it affects everyone, but and that's uh, comparison. Yeah, I think specifically comparing yourself to where someone else is on their journey. So not almost like not starting or not kind of having confidence in yourself because you're looking at someone specifically online who is so far along in their journey they've been doing this for 10 20 years they're already pretty much an expert at this whatever it is um and you compare yourself to that and think well i'm not that good so i shouldn't put any work out that i shouldn't even try because i'm not there yet yes and that my friends is holding you back um, because everyone starts at zero. We start with zero followers, zero listeners, uh, zero experience and zero skills. Every skill that 
I have, I've learnt, I've practised, I've done repeatedly over and over again to get good at. Yeah, like don't compare your chapter one to someone else's chapter 20. It's so important to just focus on yourself. Don't worry about what other people are doing. As long as you're progressing every single day and you're enjoying what you're doing, that's the key. Yeah, there's that old saying, isn't there? Comparison is the thief of joy, which I believe was said by Theodore Roosevelt. So, I mean, this is going back... What's that, 100 years ago? Yeah. yeah. Um, So, So yeah, it's not just based on the internet. Obviously, we, it's easy to kind of look at people on Instagram, but I think the whole world of the internet has opened that up a lot more. Like back in the day, I suppose there wouldn't have been as much comparison because you could see the people, they'd be around you, or you'd read them in a newspaper or some kind of other form of media. Whereas, yeah, today, it's, you constantly compare yourself. As soon as you open your phone, you've got access to all of the best painters, all of the best dancers anything the best of anything in the world is at your fingertips so it's so important to realize that yeah they all started where you are now and you can get there yeah, it's like we talked about in the girly episode and we've had like some really great feedback about about that episode and we talked in there about how well it was girly's point where she said that social media instagram has been set up like a competition mm. that's why they have the likes and the follow metric it's it's a competition of of who can be the most successful on their platform it's not just to view their work um because the the numbers make it more of a more of a game and that can be really demor- demoralizing when you're first starting out because yeah. you you see other people who are doing these great things a bit, like seemingly yeah it's like going around to a mate's house and playing fifa or something it'd be like if they've been playing it for absolutely years and you've never picked up that console before then it's going to be really, really hard to beat them in that game. But if you consistently go away, get better and better and better, then one day you will get up to that level. Yeah, time and practice is literally all you need. Well, time, practice and self-belief, I think. And hopefully this show goes some way towards giving you the self-belief that you can achieve these things um, because time and practice that's just that's just self-discipline that's yeah. just you carving out the time to practice something um but by listening to this show by seeing literally without fail every single guest that comes on has become an ex- expert in something through putting time and practice into it yeah. and so if you see that all of these amazing people have done these things then you realize that everything actually is quite binary and it's just okay i need to practice that do it for a long time i will become good so patience Absolutely. And I think that links really nicely onto today's guest. Um, Today's guest is Reggie Yates. And he's someone who's interviewed so many people. He's completely got his 10,000 hours in interviewing. So that's quite intimidating for us who don't have anywhere near that amount of hours of interviewing experience. Um, But again, it's us remembering to ourselves that he is better than us because he's done it for a lot longer. But we have the chance to get to that level too. Yep, so thank you for joining us on our journey of learning how to interview people <laughs> every week and you guys still keep turning up, so we must be doing something right. So uh, so thank you. Yeah, the show will, uh, will continue to get better as we continue to grow and learn and you guys can use this podcast as a case study as well as all of the guests on it. As you see us grow and flourish, you will realise if you put time and effort into something as we are putting time and effort into interviewing, you'll become good at it. Yeah, I think certainly if you grew up in the UK, uh, 
Reggie Yates has been a part of your life. Many of us grew Definitely, up with Reggie yeah. with Reggie on our TV screens. Um, he's transitioned from a kids TV presenter to a fearless documentary maker, a podcaster, and overall just a storyteller. Reggie believes that through stories, we can learn, grow, change our perspectives, and ultimately we can change the world. In this episode, we talk about kindness, storytelling, and doing what you love. To find what it is that you really love and believe in yourself enough to make that your obsession and if you can obsess over something you can certainly find a way to make it pay your bills hi reggie hello mate Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's yeah, so we met um, a couple of weeks ago mm. um, at the Apple Store, and um, I hope you won't mind. But this is a story that I've been telling to people now because um, because it 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 works so really is, well. Is it like, a true story? Yeah, I'm yeah, nervous I'm now. I'm like, well, <laughs> where are you going with this? Um, so when we when we met in the Apple Store, um, we were backstage in the green room for probably about forty five minutes, yeah, I reckon, um, and we were just the three of us were just chatting, and um, we told you why we wanted to do this podcast and our why behind why we make creative rebels and um and you understood and you got the ethos and you were like we're going to do this this short live thing so we've put that episode out and um and people loved it but it was only half an hour and we didn't get a chance to dive down yeah. um but what i've been saying to people is if you articulate your why and people resonate with it then they will they will want to help you. They want to be part of what you're doing, mm. um, and this is just the perfect example. Because what we always talk about is episode one when we were starting, we had zero listeners, no audience. We had to get people to trust us that this was a good show to come yeah. on. Mm. And so, how did we do that? By emailing people and articulating our why. This is why we're making this podcast, and that's how we got Emma Gannon. And as soon as we got Emma Gannon, other guests were mm. were easier to get. But now, my new story on from the Emma Gannon one is. Yeah, we explained it to Reggie in the Apple Store and he was like, yeah, like I, I get what you're doing. You're trying to help creative people because it's fucking hard being creative and it's hard to sell art. It's hard to make money from art. Like, And I use art broadly yeah, in no, like I, dance, I, I, poetry, I use it in the whatever. same way, absolutely. Yeah. Anything creative. Yeah. And um, and so, yeah, I appreciate that and I uh, appreciate you being here. So no, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. It just didn't feel long enough. Yeah. And I felt like we were having to talk really quickly to get through just some of the things that we wanted to say. And, um, I, you know, before we turn these mics on, we were talking about this idea of why I'm here. Mm -hmm. And I love being able to share some of the things that I've learned. I, I'm an incredibly fortunate position where I, uh, I have a career and it's not something that has been going for four or five years we're talking about nearly 30 and that is a long time for anyone in any career doing yeah. one thing or in my case lots of different things under the same umbrella and as a result I've learned some stuff and I don't mean that like oh I know it all I mean that I've been through a lot creatively uh privately personally um and have taken a lot from that and because of that there is a lot that I can share that I'm finding out through my mentees, through my family, through people that stop me on the street and ask for advice, through Instagram DMs, that there is a real value to sharing the knowledge. So let's, uh, let, let's talk. I think what really interests me about you is the fact that you've been in this industry for so long. Right. You get so many people who like come in when they're young, they're around for a bit and then they disappear and you'll mm. never see them again. Yeah, that's a lot. How have you managed to like keep going? 
Uh, it's a really simple answer, actually. It's because I've stayed interested. Um, to expand on that, I think that's really broken down by pivoting when I lose interest. Mm -hmm. So I only really do something uh, so long as I care about it. The minute I stop caring, or more importantly, the minute I stop learning, I'm done. Yeah, I'm so exactly the same. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing position to be in when you can say, uh, I can jump from one thing to the next, but it's not as simple as that. Like mm -hmm. there is a lot of subtext to that. And that subtext is, uh, it requires a lot of balls. It requires a lot of faith in your talent. Um, when I was younger, it was pure stupidity. I would say no to, like, for instance, when I was uh, 17, 18, 18, sorry, 18, 19, I was asked to host Blue Peter and I said no. At that point, I didn't have a regular show. And I said no, not because I thought it was corny or like posh kids watch Blue yeah, Peter. Yeah. It's because I never watched it. I, I didn't want to have to do items with elephants and horses. You know, I, I'm a working class kid from a council estate in North London and I was watching Art Attack. I wasn't watching that because anyone can get to a pen and a piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. So Neil Buchanan spoke to me, you know, he didn't have acrylic paints. He had a biro and I was like, yes, I can do this. Yeah, or Tony yeah. Hart. Yes, I can, I can get a pencil. I can get to a couple of colored pencils, Yeah. but getting 50 toilet rolls and some white acrylic paint and, you know, building Tracy Island was too far for me. I, I, that was, that was beyond what I had access to. And that may sound ridiculous, but that was my life as a kid. So, that show didn't speak to me. We, we couldn't afford to go to London Zoo. So Blue Peter was wrong. And even as a kid uh, or a teenager, I knew that I needed to do things that were within the boundaries of what I believed in and, and what I cared about. And then I knew that I could be my truest self. Mm -hmm. And the minute that that stopped being the case, like deciding to stop making children's television, I knew that I was on the, the right path in being able to be brave enough to to say no. So when you said no to Blue Peter, what was the next move from that? Smile came along. Ah, cool. And Smile uh, was a show that we made donkeys years ago, but it brought Fern and I together for a longer term. We started working together in Disney Club when we were like 14 and 15, maybe 13 and 14. I can't remember. We were really young. And um, yeah, Disney Club, Dig It, and Smile. And Smile was one of those shows that just felt different to everything else on kids TV because yeah, it was breaking the mold, wasn't it? It was kind of taking that, um, that T, uh, TFI Friday sort of really, like, don't you think it was a bit more, a bit more like anarchic? <laughs> well, I'll take it. <laughs> it definitely doesn't, doesn't feel like that in hindsight to me because I look at Chris Evans as a hero, you know, yeah, sure. um, and we certainly weren't that. I think what we were was, uh, we were definitely looser than everybody else. And also, you know, for want of a better turn of phrase, Jesus is going to sound a bit racialist, but to call a spade a spade, there were two black kids with braids wearing academics tracksuits and Air Force yeah. Ones using slang with an item called bubbling where they were doing dance moves that they were doing in the club the night before yeah. on children's television on Sunday on the BBC. You didn't see that. You didn't, you just, it just yeah. didn't make any sense anyway. So people tuned in and were like, what is this? So I think that that was what gave us a point of difference and also sort of burnt into the retina of middle England and also uh, kids in major cities who were black and ethnic minority because it's like, oh crap, I know that kid or I am that kid. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's TV for me, not for other people. Right, right. Yeah, and I think, I mean, certainly like where I grew up, um, like for me to turn on the TV and just see all white people was a disconnect. 
mm. um, even though they're people that looked like me myself. Yeah. They didn't look like the people that I'm growing up with and that live in my community and that yeah. are around Where'd me. Where'd you grow up? Um, Purley. Yeah, yeah. So like, South. yeah, yeah, Croydon, yeah. 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 Um, that sort of area. Massive migrant um, communities there, definitely. Yeah, for sure. And I, I went to sort of a, a really, really rough primary school. Um, and and like, yeah, just my, my, I suppose primary school is very different to secondary school. and Less um, hormones. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that. And um, I don't, like, certainly in, in secondary school, I noticed that the black kids were hanging out with the black kids, the Muslim kids were hanging out with the Muslim kids, the white kids were hanging out with the white kids. But at primary school, we were all together yes. and we were all as one and we were playing Batman or Ninja Turtles and like, and that was, and that was cool. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, when it comes to, to TV, like that representation was like, it was really important and was like a step that needed to happen. Is that, have you seen the documentary Tanning of America? Of course, yeah. Yeah. Like, Steve Stout, yeah. That's such an incredible story, but for people who haven't seen it, that's it's it's basically the the permeation of black culture into America um, to, to now become really the... Say again? The book's really good too. I've not, I've not read the yeah, book, yeah. but yeah, I watched the documentary and it's like, I mean, we culminate with, with a black president and, but it's, it, it basically shows you that without step by step, we don't get the black president. It's everything in the meantime. And like the stories are so like incredible of, of like, I don't know, like Biggie and, and um, like, I mean, it's a shame to talk about it now, but the Cosby show and how important that was at the time. Yeah. And obviously he was a monster, but, mm. um, but like, yeah, just step by step by step, black culture permeate, permeating into America and just, and like, I suppose, you were a part of black culture kind of stepping in in the, the UK. Yeah. Well, I, I've always sort of seen it as the normalization of the black experience. Mm. And when it is being encouraged to be authentic, there isn't a fetishization that happens in that process. And thankfully for us, that was the case. We were surrounded by producers and directors um, who cared about us being ourselves, not caricatures. Mm -hmm. You know, we weren't told to braid our hair. We braided our hair. Mm. It was our idea to do the countdown in braids on the back of Dev's head. And he would spin and reveal number four <laughs> done in braids Dope. when we did the top 10 countdown, you know, cause his twin sister braided both of our hair. So the show went out <laughs> on a Sunday morning and on Saturday night or Friday night, we'd be sat at his house with his sister braiding our hair, you know? Yeah. And it was us just wanting to be fresh. So we'd turn up with our do-rags and rip them off and be ourselves. And we were encouraged to be ourselves. And because of that, maybe we were involved in that normalization uh, and that um, exposure of something that we saw as normal, but it was only over time that we realized it wasn't the case for 90% of the people watching. It was like, wow, this is different. This is really interesting and exciting. And for that small percentage of people, it was like, holy crap, this feels familiar in all the right ways. And so that's something that's, that's kept constant through your career is, is you... I suppose staying true to yourself, would you agree? Yeah, um, I'd call it that. Uh, it's sort of knowing what I care about and knowing what the uh, what the appropriate career decision to reflect that might be. So uh, going from kids TV into music felt right. Uh, we were on pirate radio. Uh, so we had a pirate radio show playing everything that we wanted to play. And then... Um, you know, the graduation from pirate radio was one extra upon launch. And suddenly you're stood shoulder to shoulder with your heroes, you know, um, the heartless crew are on one extra on launch day. Manny Norte is there, you know, there's like all the DJs that you've grown up looking up to rampage, you know, the biggest carnival sound system. They're like, Oh, Rich, you're right there. How are you doing? You're like, 
oh my God, I've been coming to Rampage every year and you know my name. And it was just this amazing sort of fraternity, this moment where you felt that you were part of something incredible and it was stamped by the BBC. It was like, what the hell? This is amazing. (laughs) And like there is this amazing first one extra photo that they've blown up and covered a wall with. Well, they did anyway in the old building before they moved to the new place in Yarding House. They had that. And in the new BBC building, I don't know if it's still there because I left uh, Radio 1 maybe a month after they moved to the new snazzy digs and the old Radio 1 building is now a restaurant. It's a caravan. So it's weird when you're having lunch in there for work or something. You're like, wow, this used to be Miles' studio. This is really surreal. Um, I felt like, um, like I was where exactly where I needed to be at 18, 19 years old on national radio or on one extra digital radio surrounded by my heroes. It felt right. Were you confident in that situation or did you kind of have that imposter syndrome? Were you like, how? Do you know what? I've not really suffered in a great way with imposter syndrome because I've never found myself in a place where I don't feel like I've worked to be or I've arrived at prematurely I've been made to work for everything (laughs) you know I've really had to graft to every situation like I've never found myself hosting a show where I'm like what am I doing here I don't know how to do this um or I've never yeah so that that imposter syndrome thing is something that I think I felt in different ways I, I wouldn't call it imposter syndrome that I feel when I'm doing something new I'd call it um I don't know, uh, uh, fear of not being uh, as good as I want to be, Mm -hmm. as opposed to feeling that I don't deserve to be there because for everything I've achieved, I've worked my ass off for it. And the most new thing in my life right now is writing and directing. And that is something that I've been working on privately for a long time. But again, when, you know, you have so many screenplays that you've written and the people that you trust to be honest around you are saying, that's crap, that's crap, that's crap. Hang on, that one's good. You know that there's a progress. So... I don't really find myself in that imposter syndrome place. It's good that you've got those people that are brave enough to say that to you though, because there's a lot of people in positions like yours that are surrounded by yes people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I suppose maybe they engineer that, would you think? Possibly. Just because they like to hear the yeses all the time. Yeah. See, the the funny thing about me is, like I said, I've been here a long time and I want to keep going. And you're not going to keep going. You're not going to get anywhere by having people that aren't honest with you. Yeah. I, I can smell fake a mile away. I can't bear it. I can't stand when people aren't authentic or aren't their real selves. Um, I'm constantly having conversations with strangers, which is really beautiful. And also sometimes quite weird because it's got to a place now where there's a generation of people that their words, not mine, have grown up with me, which is a beautiful thing. Mm. And as a result, it can force people to act out of pocket because they'll see you, know you, not just recognise you, but know you. It's like, oh, wow, I've seen you grow up. I know (laughs) you, right? And they'll say something to you like, oh, Reg, um, uh, it's good to see you lost some weight or something like that. And then I'll go, what? And they'll go, oh, um, uh, uh, it's just jokes, man. Anyway, I hope you're well. Like your mum's really beautiful. Love watching, love watching your family interaction on who do you think you are. Bye. And then you'll see them going, oh, what am I doing? What am I saying? Why am I saying these stupid things? And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? And those embarrassing, weird situations happen more than I'd like to admit, because there are so many people who just slip into the familiar when they see you because they know you, or at least they feel that they know you. And 
the reaction doesn't involve the understanding that I've never met you before. Yeah, yeah. So I try my absolute best to be as familiar with people as they are with me when they meet me. Um, and it's, it's led to some funny and weird conversations over the years. I don't know if this is something that people have ever said to you, but um, I know a lot of people in sort of like um, established positions will get, oh, that's easy for you to say because you're Reggie Yates. Mm. And I think like what what is important to notice, and Adam touched on it earlier, is that um, there are so many people that have fallen by the wayside. And the fact that you have been in the public eye for the past 30 years is like, that's that's credit to you and obviously credit to people who are being honest with you. And um, But like, so in terms of career, you've always done what's interested you, I guess, with, yeah. with that would be... Absolutely. Yeah. See, I'd challenge you on that being in the public eye thing because... I'd argue that today I'm not really in the public eye. That's interesting. And that's the way I see myself. But, and, and the reason I'd say that is because the only time you really see me is when I've got a show out. Yeah. Or when I'm doing press for a show. Yeah. I'm not in heat. I don't eat at Nobu. I, I don't date a page three model. So you're, you're not seeing me anywhere that I've not put myself. So being in the public eye is a relationship that I... I'm in control of, I think. Yeah, how conscious is that decision? Massively. I think it's all down to how you lead your life. Like, look at premiership football players. There's people who you know have a reputation and there's people who you know nothing about. You just know how good they are on the right wing. But it's a choice. I would argue that your content is evergreen. So there's someone probably watching one of your documentaries right now. Mm. And so when they see you tomorrow walking down the street, yeah. it's all high Reggie because because you're there because you're present or they're watching your, your IG stories and they're seeing, okay. they're yeah, seeing yeah. you every day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. like, um, I wonder what it is that, that gives people that confidence to, to come up to people. Cause like I walked past JME the other day mm. and I would never in a million years just go, yo, Jamie. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? yeah. It's like, I, 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 I just wouldn't it's, do it's, that. It's the familiarity. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's the relationship. Uh, if you've been watching me, uh, from when you were literally in your PJs with your legs yeah. crossed eating cereal on a Sunday morning <laughs> yeah. to the point now where you've just come out of university and you see me on the street, chances are you're going to feel comfortable enough to go, all right, Reg, yeah, yeah, because yeah. that is the way that I interact with people and have done since you saw me when you were a kid. Mm. So for you to see me on the street and go, you're right, Reg, and I go, how you doing, mate? You're right. It's not weird mm. for me or for them because... That is the way that I am, period, on camera. And I've said this before, and I really do stand by this. I am myself 100% of the time. I don't shift. The way I'm talking to you now is the way I spoke to you before these cameras turned on. Yeah, yeah. And it's the way I talk to my mum. It's the way I talk to my manager. It's the way I talk to my bank manager. Like I'm not going to change myself for anyone now. I'm, I'm an old geezer. I'm cracking on. You know, I'm not a kid anymore. And I'm very much set in my ways. And... Um, I am the man that I will be hopefully only getting more refined as time goes on. And because of that, the way that I am with people and my way, I don't think changes regardless of the situation. It's exhausting to keep up something that you know. Yeah. If it was a performance, I would have died of, of tiredness by now. I, I, I couldn't pretend for this long. This is who I am and it's flawed and it's certainly not perfect but it's, uh, it's someone who's eager to keep learning. And I think because of that, I feel a progression on a personal and a professional level. Yeah, we, like, we talked a lot on the show about kind of the fakeness of like Instagram and how there's like lots of kind of 
in, people's lives are so different online and they people make such an effort to live this fake life that isn't their actual life but they're kind of perceiving to the world of what everyone else is. You mean like renting the car and all of that sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah. Like you see people around here having photo shoots and they've obviously just rented that car and it's just so fake and it's so hard to keep up. Well, it, it, it depends who you follow. I'm so sorry to cut you, but I get really annoyed whenever I hear that and I'm not getting mad at you or anything because yeah. you're a very nice man and I'm not getting angry at you, I promise. But I do get wound up when... Um, the paintbrush is used to paint everybody mm. because I think as a platform, Instagram is incredible and um, it has so many different sides to it. It depends what you, what you, you zone in on. For instance, I have a secret account. I'm happy to say, and I will not say what it is or what <laughs> name it is, yeah. but I love. Yeah, G-rates. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what it is. It's a hate account. I go on and, and troll everyone. No, I, I love, and I always have loved interiors. And I have an interior account where I post up beautiful homes and I post up what some of my favorite interior architects are doing, some of my favorite designers. And I have lots of interaction with people that I don't know and they don't know it's me. They just yeah. know that I'm the guy that has the blah, blah account. And that feed, because all I follow is interiors and art, is beautiful. It's such yeah. a lovely thing to go to. I don't see any of that fakeness. It's that same thing of people going, oh, LA is full of people who are fake and cheesy and yeah, da 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 da. Yeah. LA is exactly what you want it to be. I describe LA as a plasticine city. If you want to go there and create the mold of your plasticine that is yoga and green juice and and, and hikes and, and, and healthy salads, you can live that life yeah. and not bump into the One Oak, Kylie Jenner, pumped up lips, fake boobs, fake bum, Melrose crap, you know, and there's so many different sides to it. And I think with a platform like Instagram, pick a side and you won't see the other stuff. So yeah. Yeah. I think like where I was going with that is the fact that. Yeah. If you'd let him you, finish Reggie. For yeah, fuck's sake. Sake. Um, <laughs> was the fact that all that's happening and basically we're, we say to people like be authentic and you're the perfect example of someone who's been authentic consistently and you've succeeded. So it's kind of like, you don't have to be this fake person because by being yourself, it's not going to tire you out and you can continuously, like you can be good going forward. And kind of continuing on from what you were saying there, we talk a lot about curating your feed and the fact that like, if you have anything on your feed that makes you unhappy, like makes you jealous, like just delete it, remove it. Like have a, like your feed, you're the only person you can control that. So make sure that that is, as curated as possible to bring you joy, happiness, inspiration, education, like the goodness. Like I'm a massive advocate for social media if people know how to use it, yeah. which I think that's what the issue is, is the fact that no one's been trained. They don't teach at school how to use it. Whereas like if I ran a school now, there'd be an Instagram class mm. and or just a social media class in general of like, this is how you should use it responsibly yeah. because there should be these guidelines of like, if you're a young kid picking up your phone now, like, why are you going to follow this person? Because you want to live in a big house with a nice car or because this person inspires you or educates you or you can get something from it. It's like, yes, you might look at that and think, oh, one day I want to be that. But then realising that until you are that, every single day you're going to look at it and be miserable. So it's like, get rid of that shit and just focus on stuff that makes you happy and brings you joy. And yeah, I think that should definitely be in, be in the school system. It's a smart way to look at it. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think knowing why you're following someone is really important, mm. especially if you're following 4,000 people or something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, what do you want to see every day? And um, I had a cull a little while ago and after starting to unfollow people, 
about three hours later, I was still sat there unfollowing people. Yeah. I went down from like 5,000 to one and I'd love it to just be 500 accounts that give me exactly what I need mm-hmm. because there's nothing worse than going to the search thing and you know you get the suggested recommended yeah, pictures yeah, yeah. or whatever and you just see stuff that makes your skin crawl and you're I, like holy crap this is the, the the network and algorithm that i'm within i need to change this i think that's a perfect way to kind of analyze your instagram account if you go to your browse page yes. look at what content's on there if that's the kind of content that you like and you want to be posting you're following the right kind of stuff mm-hmm. because it just looks at everything you're doing and you've got an average of that and it's based on what you've liked previously yeah. so yeah if i go to mine because i've like my page is basically a portrait page everything is just portraits like and then you'll get a few bits of like the like anime drawing stuff yes. that i love as well yeah. but apart from that is no nothing else it sounds like a healthy place to be it is yeah. <laughs> yeah there's one thing i can't work out though and that's on the out rebels create when we go onto our search on there haircuts so many haircuts and I mean it's art like yeah. it's incredible that it's happening but why are we seeing so many fucking haircuts I, I think that's my fault <laughs> you like so, the haircut pictures no so I think what happened once it came up on like the browse page and I was like there was someone getting like a real like nice fade with some like lines down it the like I was just fascinated because I cut my own hair and I have no to way. yeah I, like, my mum was a hairdresser that's why wearing a hat <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say you're not showing it off yeah <laughs> um but yeah, my mum's mum was a hairdresser growing up, so yeah. she was coming home. When I went to uni, I was like, "Well, I'm not going to pay someone else to do this because I love learning and I love just think I can do anything." So I was just like, "Well, I'm going to watch a YouTube video and I'm just going to do it myself." And I have done for the past twenty years. Yeah, play wow, Probably so saved, saved, a, lot saved of money. a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and anytime I can learn something, I'm like, "That's interesting." Mm. And I think with the hair thing, I was I think it came up once, and I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." And just sat and probably watched it for like two minutes of someone getting the haircut. That's your algorithm and, changed forever. Yeah, and then it went boom to the next one. I was like, oh, this one's interesting. <laughs> so I probably sat there for like 20 minutes. I was just like, like scrolling in the other day, like, and I said, I was, said, I was with the honor and I was like, haircut, haircut, haircut. <laughs> it's fucking weird. Because like, it's haircut wormhole, you fell yeah, into yeah. it. <laughs> That's what you get. It's fucking fascinating. <laughs> um, you talked about um, not feeling imposter syndrome. Um, how about comparison? Because I, in, in researching you, um, I listened to your new podcast, oh, right. which is fucking fantastic, by the Thank way. Thank you very so much. Congratulations. Uh, Road Less Travelled. Road Less Travelled. Um, and I was listening to, um, like, I, I love the one with um, Grey Worm. I forget Jacob his name. Anderson. Yeah, Jacob Anderson. That's great. But the one with Stanley Tucci, that's just, I, I loved it. Thank you. That's um, very kind. And <laughs> I was listening to it and I'm always always learning as well. And I'm like, and I picked up something from you that, I, that was fucking flawless is that you had a story and uh i think something about childhood but i could tell there was a story that you were about to you were about to say and he said something and you stopped and you you didn't tell your story which i'm sure would have been entertaining sure it would have been great because you knew you were here to to interview the guest and you let him speak and like so me then as an amateur interview who's done like maybe 50 interviews now i was like or obviously always learning, but like comparison set in and I was like, I've got to fucking interview that guy in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> and he's just done that. That's masterful. And like, so I was suffering from comparison there. Do you ever feel it? Because do you ever look at like, do you look at other people that are doing similar to things to you and go, fuck, I've got so far to go? Um, no. Great. <laughs> Sounds awful to say, but no, I don't. Um, I, and, and that's not because I think I'm better than anyone. It's because I know that my journey is different to theirs. Um, I take from the people that I admire and I 
can recognize greatness and I can recognize mastery and I will learn from those people, but I will never go, oh my God, I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough or I'm not as good as because I know that I am on my own journey and I have my own route to get to where I want to get to. And um, it's very kind what you said about the Stanley Tucci interview and the reason that I find myself doing that more and more a lot is because uh, when it comes to podcasting, so I have two podcasts, I have the Road Less Travelled and I have the Reggie Yates podcast. And I feel that both of those podcasts are successful simultaneously because they do the same thing in a different way. And that is that I have learned from my factual work. uh, And it was quite a tough lesson to learn uh, that when you are interviewing someone, it's not about you. And I found myself in, on several occasions while making documentaries, getting frustrated with the things that people were saying to me or things that I found offensive. And there was one film that I made about um, homophobia in Russia. And I walked off from the interview because of some of the things that the person in front, the person in front of me was saying. And it, it was just disgusting me because of my connection to that community. And um, it was a fantastic lesson that if I'd stayed there and realised that my reason for being there wasn't to be emotional, it was to be it was to be balanced, to be boundaried, and to ask the right question. I would have got more out of him. That sequence would have been three times stronger. And that lesson has stayed with me. It's the same when I went to South Africa and I met this incredibly arrogant preacher and horrible, horrible person who I felt was taking advantage of his community. Um, again, I got frustrated. I didn't want to ask him questions. I was closing up. And it was when my director, big up Sam Wilkinson, sat me down and went, mate, like you can't let him get to you because this film isn't about you. It's about him and why he is the way that he is. Remember that. And I just felt so stupid. <laughs> I felt so dumb in that moment. And that I think has really changed the way that I speak to people when I'm in the interviewer's chair, because if you recognize it's not about you, you're constantly striving to get more from them and questions go out the window. For instance, with my podcast, um, people sort of, I had somebody ask me, oh, do you have any questions that you want to send over early doors or do you want to have a briefing conversation? I was like, no, we don't know what we're going to say to you. I don't know what I want to ask. I just know when I look at you, it will come up. So just bring yourself and be prepared to talk about yourself. And that's it. And the, the, the publicist was a bit like, oh, well, okay. And they were a bit <laughs> nervous because everybody is, sort of pre, uh, everybody is sort of programmed for interviews. Whereas the best content is conversation. How many hours do you reckon you've done interviewing now? Do you reckon you've done your 10,000? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're an expert. I, I'm definitely not an expert. I don't think anybody is. I think Larry King wouldn't say he's an expert. I think Howard Stern would say he's not an expert because there's always that one person that you meet that teaches you something new about yeah. about yourself and about what it is that you're trying to do. So I, um, I'm working towards being better at it. And who knows, maybe in a few years time, I won't have two podcasts, I'll have five. Maybe I'll have, I won't do any podcasts and I'll have a talk show, who knows? But I do know that, conversation is something that I love and through it both publicly and personally through sitting up with my brother till 1am last night 
through sitting with my therapist hours at a time, through talking to my friends. Some of the best conversations I've had on the podcast have happened after we finished the show when the mics were off because we were all so emotionally open that we wanted to have a conversation that was for us. Mm -hmm. And conversation has changed my life. And I think that it will be a huge part of what defines my time on this planet. What makes a good conversation? Empathy, understanding, um, kindness. Uh, I think generosity. Uh, people aren't generally, generally speaking, I think people don't realize how disingenuous they can be when it comes to the way that they approach a conversation. We all know that person that says that they want to talk to you, but all they want to do is talk about themselves. Yeah. And that's, a horrible position to be in, particularly if you recognize it. And um, not to say that I'm looking for flaws in people, but I know when people do it. And it was quite funny. Literally today it happened. I went for lunch with a mate who I hadn't seen in forever. And he just went, he just went. (laughs) And um, I I, I quite quickly realized that he just needed to talk. So I listened. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the, at the end of the interview, hilarious, (laughs) hilarious. At the end of our lunch, um, I was leaving, uh, we went back to his office. Uh, he gave me a, a couple of things that his company make. And um, I was saying goodbye. And he was like, have you been all right though? And I went, it's a very long question to answer because I've got so much to say. He went, what do you mean? I went, mate. And I told him one thing that I knew he'd get excited about. And I went, but I can't talk about it right now because he got to go. And he went, Jesus Christ, I just spoke about myself for this whole lunch, didn't I? And I went, yep. But it's cool. I love you. Another, I love you. Come here. Yeah, I gave him a cuddle and he was like, and then he texted me after he was like, look, let's sit down and talk about you. And I was like, yeah. ah, if you got time. And and it's it's sometimes it happens. And I I think I can see it when it's happening now. And I'm very conscious of doing that. Obviously not in this scenario because you're asking me questions <laughs> yeah, about yeah, me. Yeah. Even I'm saying a lot about myself, but I can see it coming now. How do you keep that kindness and empathy when you are talking to someone, because I have watched some of your documentaries and I'm shouting at the screen. Mm. Um, and like, particularly when like homophobia and stuff like that comes up. Um, I remember when you're um, in a black barbershop and you're talking to, uh, you're talking to one of the cats in there um, who's just like, well, it's just wrong, isn't it? I mean, homosexuality is just wrong. And, and uh, you're, cho- and, and he's saying that you're choosing to, uh, and then you've got the the gay guy there who's like, you don't choose to be gay, and like, and and I'm there going, well, you're an idiot, like, and I'm like feeling really passionate, but you're saying you're staying really calm, and you are meeting him with kindness and empathy. But I suppose you're understanding he's a result of culture and upbringing and beliefs that have been passed on to him that he's then assimilated into his life. But how do you keep that that composure and that kindness? Well, not to make this the Simon Sinek Appreciation Podcast, but, you know, we, when we last met, spoke about the Start With Why book. I truly believe that if you start with the why, then it's endlessly fascinating as to what the conversation could go to and what could come out in the conversation and what realisation someone can make if you're constantly asking why. Obviously in different ways. You don't want to be a petulant three-year-old. Mummy, why? (laughs) You don't want to be that kid. Um, So if you're um, in that situation, in Jawaz Barbers in Peckham High Road, and you've got someone spewing pure ignorance, um, you know it's not coming from a place of, of hate. 
it's coming from a place of um, of culture. Yeah, a lack of understanding. A lack of understanding, a lack of experience. And to be angry at him makes you as bad as who you think he is. Yeah, I think. <laughs> no, there's no, no judgment on you at all. I just think, yeah, um, it's just really easy to judge. And we're all sort of very quick to judge each other. Whereas in reality, everybody is dealing with something or has their own hangups or, you know, just think about the amount of crap that you've shed becoming a grown up and the person that you were at 19 versus now worlds apart. The same goes for me. We've all changed and grown. And unfortunately some people just don't have the, uh, they don't have a fortunate enough life to go through that change and growth and development. And, um, Unfortunately, sometimes I find myself in conversations with those people, but quite quickly I'm able to click into that gear in knowing that there is a reason that you behave this way. And that is where the fascinating stuff comes. And that is where you get to the good stuff that makes a documentary worth watching. Do you have a need, in, or do you feel the need in that situation to try and educate them or do you just kind of leave it? Um, I, I think that when you try and educate someone in that kind of situation, you quickly hit a brick wall. Yeah because then it becomes a conflict. Then you have two differing opinions. Uh, the way that I work is to choose my moments. Um, I, I pick quite early on what mountain I'm willing to die on and the rest, are, 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 you know, I'll let fly. So um, I think it's, it's complicated, but you go on gut and you know when it's right. But also, you know, if you have two weeks with someone, you're not gonna challenge them day one on why they are so racist because you've just lost two weeks of filming. Mm. You can get to why they are when you meet their mum, when you go for dinner with their yeah, angry yeah. granddad. And it's just so much more real when you see that play out. And then you go, oh, wow, this is why you are the way that you are. And then suddenly you get to the end of the two weeks and the, the guy breaks down in tears and he says, I hate the person that I've become. And you go, hey, we got a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And that's that storytelling. Are any of those scenarios like intimidating? Because I imagine, especially like being in Russia and stuff, it must be a bit of a weird situation to be in. I remember watching um, a documentary you did about kind of anti-feminists. Yes. And like yeah. being in like some of those rooms of people who are just so angry. Because like for me, I'm like a very like non-aggressive person. If people get angry around me, I get kind of like, I don't like this. Yeah. How do you kind of deal with that? Uh, well, I, I, I get uh, a lot. I get told a lot that I'm brave for the films that I make. And I always sort of chuckle at that because I certainly am not brave for standing in front of a camera in a nice coat going, oh, look at this, what's happening behind me. That doesn't yeah, make me not, brave. But you're not always doing that. You're putting an orange jumpsuit on and, and locking yourself up in a penitentiary, man. So There is on. that too. There is that too. Yeah. I think um, uh, at my worst, I'm intimidated. I don't think it makes me brave to spend a week in somebody else's life to go to jail for a week for the purposes of a documentary doesn't make me brave when there's people doing 50 year bird. Do you know what I mean? That's where I get a little funny about the distinction between the two. I think at worst I get intimidated in certain situations, for instance, being the only black man for miles on a fascist Russian March when people are saying things to you that you don't understand and they're throwing things at you. That can be quite intimidating. I don't think it makes you brave, I think it, it makes you curious, maybe quite naive, but it makes you curious. I'm not in a rush to repeat that, that's for damn sure. But um, bravery, bravery for me doesn't come into it when what you're fighting for is truth 
and to get to the bottom of a story. You know, you, you mentioned the, the prison film. I was adamant that I wasn't going to make that immersive film where I went to this jail in Texas and was an inmate for a week. Uh, and my reason for that was that uh, I've done everything in my power to not know what it feels like to go to jail. Mm. Whereas a lot of my friends ended up in jail. Uh, and my producer at the time, exec on that show, Colleen Flynn, sort of said, well if you do this and we film it, you could be stopping 15 year old you from going to jail. And I was like, oh, you bastard. <laughs> Fucking right. And, you know, it's because of that conversation that I was like, okay, maybe I should do this. And what came from that, I think was um, a good hour of telly and also something that started some healthy conversation. What came first out of that and your roadkill short film? Oh, that's a good, that's an interesting link. And thank you for watching Roadkill. Um, also, that is fucking amazing. Oh, wow. Thank I think I've so got much. in my notes, fucking amazing. <laughs> like for the fact that it's like a five minutes, yeah. like the amount of story that comes across, the amount of emotion that you feel is insane. Oh, wow. Like Very kind. Yeah. So I've missed this. What's Roadkill? Uh, so I write and direct uh, drama. Yes. And next year will be the year where every 2020, depending on what, so next year, depending on when you're listening to this, um, if you're, if you found the time capsule, <laughs> it's 2070. Uh, but yeah, uh, 2020 next year will be the year where my writing and directing will finally hit screens. Uh, in, in, in what I hope will be quite a big way because I'm working on some, some big projects and it's very exciting for me. And, um, uh, you know, that 10,000 hours you speak of, uh, for me, that 10,000 hours as a writer and director came through my years as an actor, but also my years writing privately and not showing anyone my crappy work and making short films. So Roadkill is a short film that I made, which um, it gets into the blurred line between mental health and criminality. And I made Roadkill... I think before I made the Texas documentary and it's weird because it's exactly the same themes. Um, while I was in the jail in Texas, it sort of became very clear to me that 90% uh, of the people that I met behind bars, I mean, you've seen the film, were dealing with some sort of mental health issue. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people that were in there in the psych ward, quote unquote, who really should have just been in a mental health facility but because they'd been picked up on the street, quote unquote, breaking the law, yeah. they were thrown in jail and they weren't being given the proper treatment, um, arguably not the right medication. And as a result, they'd serve their time, get let back out and come back in a week or however long it took for them to get, to get arrested again. Yeah. So that blurred line between mental health and criminality to me is an interesting one and um, an area that, I was fascinated by before I made the documentary, but in making the documentary, I realized how right my instincts were mm -hmm. to write the short. And Roadkill is a short film that if you just Google my name and Roadkill, uh, it's online. I think it's on my Vimeo. Well, I'll check that out tonight then. Yeah, it's cool. It's only four or five minutes, but I'm really proud of it. I think yeah, we did a good job. Yeah, you should be. Thank it's you, man. Good. That's cool. You talk about um, changing and growing. How much has documentary making impacted that change and that growth? Because initially you didn't want to do yeah. documentaries, right? Yeah, yeah totally. I, I was I, I was convinced that I was the wrong person for documentary making because I didn't feel like an expert in anything. Um, the change and growth through documentaries has been huge um, because you're in extreme situations. I, I mean, I had a series called Extreme that ran for three series, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, when you're sort of back is up against the wall, who you really are comes to the fore. 
and I've been proud of the person that I've been in quite difficult situations. And I've also been embarrassed at times of how I've reacted. And it's all been an incredible learning experience. And fortunately or unfortunately, it's, um, it's over quite intense periods of time. Uh, so the learning curve is sharp <laughs> if you want to keep making these films. Um, Why embarrassed? Uh, because I think I could have been better in some situations. For instance, my frustration or anger came to the surface before my empathy uh, or my desire to understand or my ability to be a grown up and a program maker. You know, they came second or third to frustration. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't happen as much now. It's better now. Um, but yeah, I've learned a hell of a lot about me professionally and personally from those challenges. What's the biggest thing do you reckon you've taken away from going into documentaries? Everybody has a story. Um, everybody has stuff and empathy is everything. I think if you're, if you come into a situation knowing or just at least expecting people to have something just beneath the surface, you're just a bit kinder. Yeah. And um, the shorthand that I have with my mates is quite hard. We take the piss out of each other relentlessly. Not everyone can take that. So I know that I can't speak to everybody in the way that I speak to my friends. There is a version, well, there is a version of myself that is consistent 100%, but when I don't know you, there are certain things that I know it's probably not best to show or to reveal. And that doesn't mean that you're code switching. It just means that you're being kind <laughs> because, <laughs> because I can't take the piss out of your haircut that I can't see. Cause I don't know if you're going to burst into tears <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah, until yeah, I know yeah. that I'm not going to be that person with you, you know? And I never used to care when I was younger, I will be my authentic self. Yes. But I will also be a little bit more, uh, responsible, shall we say, with how I carry myself and what I share. Um, and that extends from everything from silly little insults that you might have with your friends, right the way through to things that you consider normal, but maybe someone I grew up with doesn't, you know, when you're just flippantly talking about something you bought or somewhere you're going, it's easy to forget those days where you didn't eat all day or the oven heated up the house or you got bad feet because you can't afford to buy new shoes. Like it's easy to forget that because you sort of, you shed mm. that once you're out of that place. But that was my life at one point. And that is the life of some of the people that I grew up with to this day. Therefore for me to, you know, chat to them about something a bit flash, it's irresponsible and it's a lack of empathy. So it's just being aware and switched on. Yes, it requires a lot of energy and yes, it is bloody draining, but I think it's the healthiest way to navigate the various worlds that I find myself in because I don't just walk one street. I don't just stay in one city. I'm all over the world now and my programs are all over the world and I'm meeting people all over the world. And there's nothing weirder and more fantastic and more interesting than being stopped on a street in Sydney by an Australian saying, I really love what you do and I've been watching you for years. And you're like, what? So um, yeah, it's been an education. Everyone does have a story, but I'm starting to realise more and more how many people don't take their own story seriously or don't feel like they have a story. Mm. And um, I, I think it's really astute of you to 
to realize that that every single person does have a story and and what i what i hope for people is how is that they that they do start to discover that about themselves and that your journey is your journey and no one can take that away from you and the shit that you've been through however you've dealt with it which a lot of times is just by burying it and and moving on from it it's like that's such an important part of who you are and and like and so you mentioning like keeping the keeping the the house warm through the using the oven and stuff like that it's like these things that are seemingly trivial they're what makes up our lives and i think so many people think that other people have these fantastical stories around them but f- because their norm is their norm they don't feel like they have a story and every single person has a yeah. story and i think yeah. it's yeah it's really important to to acknowledge that yeah Definitely, you you are shaped by what you experience and to neglect it is crazy, particularly if you're a creator. You know, if you are creative or a creator, if you are making art in some way, shape or form, to not put your story into your art is insane because that is a thing that makes you unique. You know, the way that you tell a story is massively shaped by your experiences. And that is why I'm able to write Roadkill, you know. I'm able to talk about that character that on face value is a killer. But in reality, he's just a kid and how he ends up in this, in the prison system and who he becomes, Mm. it's, you know, there is, there is a reason behind that. I've had lots of arguments about Top Boy recently uh, when arguments is me being dramatic, but um, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of people that sort of dislike the show. And they just like the show because they feel it glamorizes. A is this whole top or a new series? New series. Uh, well, the, the show is a whole. Uh, people feel, and I've heard a few people say this, I've been asked about this as well, uh, that it is glamorizing a side of London and a side of black London specifically that some people are ashamed of and don't want to, to see, or they don't want to see particularly on a platform as elevated as Netflix. I feel the complete opposite way. I think that, is it authentic? Yes. Do those worlds exist? Yes. Do those characters exist? Hell yeah. But what is it doing differently is what we should be asking. Mm. Uh, I think the big questions are, do we understand who those people are and why they are the way they are? Yes. In this series, unlike most British gangster street hood movies or whatever you want to call them, these characters aren't 2D. We know why they are selling drugs. We know who they are supporting and who they are looking after and also why they've justified it and how they've justified it or how they are struggling with the reality of poisoning their own community. We see that in the show. It's 10 hours. Watch it before you make judgment. On the flip side, and the other point that I think is really important when we talk about Top Boy is, yes, it does reflect one element of uh, the working class, immigrant, black British Uh, experience whatever way you want to define it but I challenge any other creator to go out there and reflect their version of said experience if you have a problem with that because that version is valid and real yours may be different so if it is different express it and that is a, a, a role that I believe that I have to take and that I have taken I've done it in documentaries I've shown a side of the UK that I want to learn more about and that I think more people should know about. And now I'm doing that in drama and I'm doing that in ways that I haven't seen before because it's my voice and authentically my voice. I think when you think about films like adulthood and kidulthood and, and you include top boy into that as well, that like, like you said, this is, this is very real shit that is definitely happening, but like you have to look at why those characters are, are like that. And, and our role 
um, as not part of that of that world. Like, like what role everyone else plays in it? Yeah. Because I feel like it's it's systemic and it's cultural and it's like. I mean, it's born out of desperation, isn't it? Like these are people that are just trying to survive. Yeah. I mean, I was on um, ITV News recently and like, you know what it's like when you're, like, that's why I love podcasts because you can deep dive and actually like- Yeah, you've got actually, three minutes. You've yeah. actually yeah. draw some con- conclu- yeah. conclusions, but it was this quick thing. And I was talking about um, illegal graffiti because obviously I painted illegally for 10 years before um, before going legit. And um, when you look at the studies that, psychologists have done on young graffiti artists like it it often turns out that they are they are hitting up against something and so there is something systemically where if everyone's happy I don't think you get any graffiti (laughs) because it's the it's the kind of like it's the fuck you it's like I've got a voice it's being seen it's being heard and certainly when I was when I was painting graffiti I was I thought I was making the world brighter place perhaps mm. quite naively but um i felt like i was the me and my friends were spreading art we were painting colorful pieces we were trying to brighten the place up um th- we didn't really have that fuck you and and we we stuck to a rule book as stupid as it, it sounds but what was the rule book no places of worship um no people's houses um no like so for us it was like we'd find abandoned warehouses Mm. um train tracks were open season for us um trains were fun for us but um but we would stay away from the people like we wouldn't we wouldn't just damage something for the for the sake of it Mm. um but i think it's very interesting when you look at because if you ask a a graffiti artist why are you vandalizing they don't know why like so that goes to there's something there's something deeper there, and I think it's the same with the top boy argument of like, yeah, we shouldn't glamorize it, but we should also be aware that it's happening, mm. and perhaps then we can work together on a solution where there's not just fucking poverty where pe- the only way to survive is by shine. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. I think um, there are so many more layers as to why uh, that show exists. And also so many more layers as to why those people exist in real life. And to neglect that is quite naive. It's almost like the UK version of The Wire. Like that's a representation of a certain part of Baltimore. Yeah, people have said that, yeah. Yeah, uh, people have compared the two shows. Um, I do think that they're fundamentally different. Mm, yeah, completely. Because of the culture of it yeah, and yeah. the connection to the Caribbean and all the rest of it. Um I do think that there is a difference there, but um, I think that the desire to tell stories in the most full way, at least in intent, you could argue that one is more elevated than the other or not. Uh, but I think that the intent to tell full stories is the same in both shows. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm looking forward to when I have my opportunity to show the version of London that I was drawn to as a teenager, because that was going on and I decided to circumvent it. And we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. And yeah, there might've been gunshots in the club, but those guns weren't aimed at me. And I wasn't carrying one and I never needed to. It was mostly this. Yeah, it was was gum fingers because EZ played dub plate nine. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's what it was. So it's a very different experience that we've not seen. And I'm really excited to tell my version of my London. When's that gonna happen? Uh, pre-production starts in six weeks so I'll be able to say a lot more about that in the next four weeks I believe once we absolutely close the financing and once that's done 
oh, I'm going to be doing a lot of press. <laughs> and that's not because I'm a press whore. Uh, that's because I really want to shout about this project. Uh, it's my first feature film and it's something I'm incredibly proud of. But there are a bunch of other dramas and comedies that I'm working on as well. Well, it's something we talk about all the time is that creatives um, on the whole are pretty bad at sales and marketing. Mm. And it's one of the most important things that they need to learn because if you make a piece of art, what's the point in making the art if no one sees it? Yeah, so true. that's for you, that comes in the form of presses and interviews and all of that stuff. Yeah, but also being creative because um, I, for the first time, am in 2020 at least, uh, a massive uh, creative element in the process. So in the past I've been bolted on as a producer or I've uh, been involved in the IP. This is my IP. You know, this is something that I've written and I've created and I'm also an executive producer and my company is co-producing. And that's the case for three projects that I have in 2020, all of which I'm incredibly proud of and my fingerprints are all over them. And because of that, I'm able to have a creative say in the way in which the show is promoted. And I learned so much from my book. So I wrote a book for Penguin a few years ago called Unseen. And um, it was about my documentaries and each chapter I talk about a film. So that it was the same structure for the whole entire book. I talk about a film that I've made, let's say uh, The Millionaire Preacher in South Africa. I would then talk about my relationship with the topic. So I sort of then spoke about my relationship with religion. And then I would speak about the lessons that I learned in making the film and drop in some stuff that didn't appear in the final episode. That was a structure for every chapter. Um, I think that in hindsight, I have learned so much about not only writing books and the process, but also how books are promoted because that book didn't go anywhere near as far as I would have liked it to go. Mm -hmm. It didn't reach as many people and it was too expensive. You know, my audience are students, are young, predominantly young people, you know, 16 to 35 yeah. to spend 20 quid on a book. If you're at a uni, it's a lot of money. Um, and we came out with a hardback that was 20, 25 quid out the gate. It should have been a paperback straight away. And that was what my gut was telling me. But because I was with experts, I let them lead the charge. You know, I was doing Sunday brunch, but I wasn't doing the right podcasts. Mm. And it's that thing of sort of having the confidence to say, no, 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 no. You're selling me. I know me better than you. <laughs> I know my audience. Therefore, for the projects that I'm going into, the way in which I want to promote them and the way in which I want to reach people um, are unique and they're new and I've never seen them done before. And that's not because I'm a genius, because I'm not. It's just because I understand who will want to see this and I know where they look and I know what they care about. So um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun how you promote something that you know in a way that maybe the people that are paying for it don't. The landscape's obviously changed hugely. Um, and you talk about literally like being on the right podcast is, is going to sell the book. Um, and that's happened whilst you're, you've been in the middle. Like how have you adapted to seeing the internet come along? Because obviously now you've got your own production company, you can produce your own stuff, but then you're also still got one foot in with like, you'll put something on Netflix or you'll put it on, you'll, you'll go to a, Traditional media. Traditional, yeah, yeah, platform. How are you kind of juggling that right now? I, I wish I could come up with a, a, a fitting and convincing lie that says <laughs> that I know exactly what it is that I'm doing, but I'm figuring it out like everyone else. Um, I think that it starts with respecting 
digital media uh, because a lot of people from my generation all that were around when I started uh, sort of didn't get it and still don't yeah. and don't ever want to. Whereas I'm fascinated by social media, Instagram specifically, and whatever follows because there will be something else. Everything dies eventually. I'm really interested to see how it progresses from this platform to the next. But I think Instagram's life has been extended by the addition of IGTV. That slightly longer form content that isn't quite YouTube, but is very mobile and mobile specific is genius. And I really want to play in that space. And I think... Uh, creating content uh, that markets and promotes or creating content that is specifically for that platform is something I want to do a lot more of. And it's so difficult convincing uh, traditional PR and press departments that are in-house at quite established production companies or networks that you need to devote some budget to this. Because that's just not the way things are done. And I'm very much part of the generation that anything that fits into the way that things are done sounds like the devil himself <laughs> so it's kind of like all right yeah that's cool let's do something else um so yeah I, i'm figuring it out and i, I want to play in every sort of pool and i kind of am which is fun do you ever struggle with like creative block no no no, no i don't i am um, i don't because i enjoy what i do uh i know and have read about writers who hate the act of writing but are very good at it and they avoid it, avoid it, avoid it until they can't avoid it no more. And they'll work through the night to deliver to a deadline. It's not me. I actually really enjoy the act of writing. I really enjoy conversation. I love going on podcasts. No, my management aren't here. They didn't force me to be here. We sorted this out and they put it in the diary. Um, I don't do anything I don't like anymore, you know, and that's a very unique and fortunate position to be in. Or is it when you've been doing it for 30 years? Yeah. I think, um, given my appearance and also given the, the 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 type of content I make and that a lot of people have found me in the last few years, I don't think people know how long I've been doing this or how old I actually am, really. And yes, I'm in my mid-30s, but I feel like I'm a lot older because I've been around people a lot older for decades. I've been working for years. For decades. Yeah. So my outlook and also my appreciation and understanding of how fragile this position is, isn't like most people of my age or the age that I'm perceived to be, which is maybe late 20s. So um, yeah, I, I just feel incredibly fortunate about what I've learned and also what it is that I, I'm trying to do next because that block to me, I think would only really apply if I wasn't in love with what I was doing or if I didn't play in different areas. So for instance, one day I'm shooting a documentary, next day I'm making a podcast, the next day I'm writing a film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, variation. Or I'm working on a book. Keeping it fresh. Or, yeah, yeah, I'm always pivoting. Yeah. What would you say to someone who isn't doing what they love? Um, I think that uh, you should ask yourself some real questions about how you want to spend the rest of your life. Mm. Um, I was raised by people that hate, hated going to work and that didn't enjoy what they did for a living. And fortunately, that's not the case for me. Um, and I'll encourage my kids to do the same. I encourage my siblings or anyone that will listen to find what it is that you really love and believe in yourself enough to make that your obsession. And if you can obsess over something, you can certainly find a way to make it pay your bills. And um, that's been the case for me. We're getting uh, super, um, I don't know what the word is. like Philosophical. philosophical We're about to get, yeah. about, uh, get yeah. a bit beret in crystals. What do you think it is that holds most creative people back? Uh, fear, 
of rejection, um, fear of not being good enough. Um, I mean, it's all the cliches and they're cliches for a reason, right? Uh, we all are capable of convincing ourselves of negative things about ourselves. I, I decided years ago, I decided long ago, <laughs> and I decided quite a while ago to be kinder to myself and to talk to myself in a much kinder voice. And because of that, I think that, you know, those self-doubts don't show up as much. My therapist calls it getting to know your shadow. So getting to know me when I'm not at my best has made that version of me not show up as much because I'm not scared or intimidated by that version of me anymore. So, so how do you get to learn to your shadow? Uh, you lean into it. So when you find yourself in that situation where you realise you've been sat on your couch for seven hours and you're not answering your phone and you don't want to leave the house and you kind of go, hang on, this wasn't who I was a week ago. What's happened? Why am I in this place? And then you count backwards and you go, oh, that happened. And then that happened and that email came in and then I lost that gig and da 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 And I'm thinking about tax and da 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 And suddenly I'm here and I don't want to do anything. And tomorrow is the beginning of a new week and I can't face it. If you find yourself on the couch in those sweatpants in that position, that's a difficult place to be. And for me, the minute I was told to lean into that and sit with that and start to understand all of those steps to retrace the breadcrumbs and go, oh, I'm worried about tax. Well, go and have a meeting with your accountant. If you can't pay it now, figure out a repayment. You're not in America. They're not going to throw you in jail. You'll figure it out and you'll be fine. Oh, okay. That's a slight weight lifted. I had that argument with that person, but was it actually an argument or did we just disagree? Let me give him a call, have that conversation. It wasn't an argument. He's not been thinking about it. It's just been in your head. Ah, another weight's lifted. It's that thing of just having the balls to go back and retrace those breadcrumbs and find out what, breadcrumbs is probably the wrong analogy. It's pebbles, isn't it? It's like those little pebbles that, and rocks that build up to create this mountain that's in your mind that no one else can see. But when you're willing to do the work to go back and retrace every single boulder and pebble and rock and actually start to smash it into a fine powder, you're able to get to that Sunday and be excited about the Monday and not be in your sweatpants. And that's what the leaning in has been for me. It's leaning into those difficult things that I just buried. And in doing that, that guy in the sweatpants doesn't show up anymore. And if he does, I know him. Yeah. So I can tell him to fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I think that's perfect to, uh, to end it on. Sure. Yeah. Reggie Yates, thank, thank you, you for having me. Much. Thank you so, so much, much, dude. No worries. Enjoy where, it. Where can people find you online? Oh, uh, all right. So Road Less Travelled is one of my podcasts. Um, season one uh, should be out there now in its entirety, if not close to. Um uh, the Reggie Yates podcast is also a podcast that I have, which is just over a year old. And there's a ton of episodes that you can check out. This is going to go out later. So this will probably date the episode, but the episode that dropped today, I'm really chuffed with. It's called Anxiety and it features Locksmith from Rudimental. And it's basically a group of guys talking about mental health and why we as men shy away from uh, appearing weak. And also, uh, as a group, we're very honest and talk about all dealing with anxiety attacks and how common it actually is. And um, I, I just think it's a really beautiful conversation. I'm incredibly proud of my friends and our guests 
uh, in being brave enough to have it. So yeah, Reggie Yates podcast. I mean, I'm at Reggie Yates on every social platform pretty much. There's a couple of fake me's out there. So look for the blue ticks. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, yeah, that's where you can find me online. Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show. So we need your help to grow the community and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever. If you can leave us an iTunes review, it makes a huge difference. See ya.